and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse, an integrative GP, and joining us today is Nicole Belsma. Many of us will know Nicole because she's been a guest several times with us on FX Medicine. Nicole's a former naturopath and acupuncturist with 15 years of clinical experience who changed her career path to become a building biologist after noticing a strong correlation with many of her patients' illnesses and the health hazards found in their home. Nicole's also the author of the best-selling book, Healthy Homes, Healthy Family, and is currently completing her PhD. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I just wanted to start off the conversation just with a little bit of background in terms of the importance of uh, environmental medicine, which I know is your super passion. So way back in 1962, a woman called Rachel Carson, who was a marine biologist, wrote a book called Silent Spring. Now, this book had the most profound influence in the world of science, but really arguably not enough impact in the world of medicine. So Rachel witnessed dramatic changes in the reproductive abilities and abnormalities in multiple species, including birds and amphibians. And she was one of the first and most instrumental people warning about the long-term consequences for the loss of wildlife populations because of pesticides and herbicides. So environmental medicine is so real. It is happening. It's been happening for a long time. It's accumulative and it is often not discussed enough. So let's start with looking at the best way to take an environmental history. So I mean, you're just such an expert in this field. Why is it important that we take an environmental history? Well, it's it's so important because most chemicals, many of the chemicals are associated with almost every chronic illness that you'll see in clinical practice. And Rachel Carson's a great example because as a result of her work, the EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, was formed in the US. So it had huge ramifications in a very positive way. But the interesting thing was her research was targeted at pesticides. And without doubt, in the, my research and published research, the chemical that comes up time and time again with almost every chronic disease is pesticides. Neurodevelopmental disorders like attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, autism, and right up to the other end, neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. I mean, you know, there's clusters of Parkinson's in farmers. I don't think that's a coincidence. Mm. Pesticides, without doubt, are my number one biggest toxicant because they're associated across the board with so many chronic illnesses. And I think part of the reason is because many of them are antibacterial, which means they're anti-human. You mm. know, a lot of these pesticides are used as preservatives in women's personal care products and in foods because they kill bacteria. And of course, as we know, our gut microbiome, our skin microbiome, our microbiome is such an important part of what it means to be healthy. And the quickest way to kill that off is to be exposed to pesticides as preservatives in personal care, as pesticides in in food, which of course is where most of the toxicants are coming from, etc. So 
pesticides are my biggest one and it's constantly there's so much data on this and its mm. ramifications on human health etc and the fact that many of these the organochlorines organophosphates are lipophilic they're being passed through the placenta and through the breast milk and they also store within the liver don't they i mean they 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 really upset our ability to detoxify so even you know um if we take the gut biome out of it it's our liver detoxification capacity that just doesn't seem to have enough it, it doesn't have the ability to detoxify these these chemicals. Yes, that's right. It has other downstream effects on the capacity to detox other chemicals. And I think a, a big reason this is is because they're antibacterial. And we've now realised our bacteria in our gut, on our skin, in our lungs, actually are probably more effective at detoxifying chemicals than even the liver. Mm. We have over 850 bacteria that we know can metabolise chemicals. Um, And this is probably far greater when we look at the microbiome across the entire body than even the liver at detoxifying chemicals. So where do we start? Like how do we approach this? Like if if we kind of are thinking about practitioners, like how do we broach this with people? Well, taking a, a, a history, the history is the most important. And this is the question I asked when I um, developed that qualitative research and interviewed the top 17 environmental doctors in Australia and New Zealand and asked them, how do you help patients with chemical sensitivities and chemical exposures? What's the best test? I just wanted to know which test by which lab, which one is it? And in the end, they couldn't agree on anything except one. And that is that the environmental exposure history is the most important clinical tool that a clinician has. And none of them were trained how to do it. And I I interviewed the top occupational environmental physicians and integrative clinicians, and they all agreed that they had to create their own environmental exposure history because they were not trained in their undergraduate or postgraduate courses to do this. Mm. So the place to start is with the grandmother. That's where. Uh, preconception care starts with your grandmother. Tell me about where she was born, what she was exposed to, what was going on in her life at the time, Um, you know, and then you look on Google Maps, what proximity? Is it near military bases? Is it near uh, uh, farms, for example? Uh, And you look at the exposure zones of of what's close by. Certainly um, your mother's history, because we know a lot of lead is being passed into children um, in the placenta from the mother to the child. So they can be born with all these toxic metal loads Mm. and have no chance from the time they're born. So taking a history of the grandmother, the mother, and of course the child itself and where they've grown up is important. Mm. Gone are the days when I did naturopathy, we said preconception care was six months before you want to try have a kid. Now we know it starts at the grandparents. (laughs) Ouch. Thinking about my grandmother's um, (laughs) health and, um, yeah, that's a little bit scary. But, but, you know, asking about things like, you know, whether your parents renovated their house, you know, what age the house was when they renovated, uh, where did they get their food supply from, did they, you know, eat organic foods, the, these kind of questions, like do, how close do they live to a freeway? Particularly yes. back prior to the 70s we had lead, when it was lead in our petrol until 1982 or something, yes, was it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So we, we had, you know, if you were living by a major road, you had lead fumes just through the cars. And, you know, these are the kind of questions that we can kind of dig down into. And, of course, there's things like your dental exposure through mercury and, uh, I guess, you know, fish. I mean, if you've got 
uh, grandparents that are Norwegian or Swedish, I mean, they're eating fish three times a day. And these are the kind of questions that we can start to have a conversation about. Definitely. And I use a mnemonic FOLD, P-H-O-L-D to the power of three. (laughs) So P is place (laughs) history. So where were you born? Where did you grow up? Um, What was the house like? Were there any signs of visible mould or damp, musty odours? Because we know they're important markers for water-damaged buildings and therefore asthma, allergies and fatiguing syndromes. Um, And proximity to those things you mentioned, traffic-related air pollution is a big one for respiratory Mm. and cardiovascular disorders. You know, a significant proportion of cardiovascular disorder is due to toxic metals like lead, for example. Mm. Um, And, of course, your house, the houses you lived in, you mentioned lead. If the house was built prior to 1986, then, of course, lead and asbestos um, could be issues if you renovated. Of course, if they're not disturbed, then they're not considered to be a risk. So prior to 1996, you know, um, certainly 1965, that's when they legislated from 50% lead content to 1% and then they dropped it in 97 to 0.1%. So the big problem now, of course, is we have new brass taps. Most of the brass taps in houses in the last 10 years have lead valves and faucets in the faucets, oh, the taps. What? So the government announced two months ago $2 billion into replacing the brass taps because they're loaded with up to 6% lead content. And you could have a a water filter, but if it goes through a brass tap, then it could be contaminating with lead. You know, the Children's Hospital in Perth was recently, you know, only about four years ago, had high levels of lead in their water in their new Children's Hospital because of the brass fittings and the taps. And I know they had a big um, issue with lead in water tanks at primary schools. Oh, yeah, that's still a big problem because of lead flashing. So you've got all the water on the roofs. Um, If you've got lead flashing, which, of course, most of it was up until about the 80s, then, you know, you just assume that it's going to have some degree of lead. Also, the PVC downpipes, PVC or polyvinyl chloride is common pipes we use for sewage, but also downpipes between the roof catchment area and the tanks. They use lead stabilisers within the plastic. So you've got lead exposure. So that's why in my book I really talk about, you know, the different sources of your water and what water filters you should consider to make sure you're not exposed to those. So we're going to talk about, you know, some really simple things towards the end, but even just staying with this environmental history taking, because there's just so many, I mean, even just the conversation we've just had. But so go back to your fold. H is for hobbies. People often have hobbies that can really expose them to toxicants, heavy metals, you know, painting, lead lighting, um, fishing, all of those things. Um, And there are many, hairdressing it from home, all that stuff that could expose them to, you know, higher levels of um, toxicants. Gardening, for example. Many of my patients with chronic um, inflammatory response from mould get better and suddenly they start mulching and now they set their health back two months because of using mushroom mulch, which they're allergic to. So, (laughs) and pesticides, you know, there's, again, pesticides are, my biggest concern um, in terms of chemicals in the house and, of course, outside. And I'm always amazed, not anymore, but the amount of people who have organic food and and go to naturopaths and are very health conscious but they live within two k's of a golf course and now they have high levels of pesticides in their blood. It's very common. And contacting them and saying, you know what, 
what, can I have the safety data sheet for the chemicals you're using? Because mm. they're often spraying them in the middle of the night when everyone's in bed. And, you know, I don't think it's a coincidence and I don't need it to be the bearer of bad news, but that golf superintendents and turf specialists have doubled the incidence of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. These are all the things that we really need to to take a look at and keep asking questions because this, it's not only just these heavy metals and pesticides, but let's talk about plastics. I know you've that's a favourite of yours. Yes. <laughs> well, now it's in our fish and our food supply, so that's bad, isn't it? Mm. Um, but, yes, plastics, of course, we want to make sure that um, we reduce our use of plastics, and I don't want everyone to throw out plastics. In fact, I prefer they keep them and use them to keep their tools and their sewing implements and, you know, use them as storage containers, but don't freeze or heat food in plastics. Um, all plastics tend to leach when, they get, when they're frozen and also when they're heated. Some plastics, of course, are notorious for containing hormone-disrupting chemicals like PVC, polystyrene and the biphenyls, which is the number seven plastics number three plastics. So, you know, you, you want to, if you're going to use plastics for drinking from, I would say try and avoid it, use glass instead, um, use stainless steel, three or four grade stainless steel instead if you can, especially with the kids. And just mm. stop buying stuff in plastics. You know, I think it's great. We've moved away from plastic bags and have to bring our plastics to the supermarket now. It'd be good to get little Hessian bags to put your fruit and veggies in so you don't have to buy plastic bags for those. Um, yeah, and the other thing that I think is really useful is um, is just material, like wrapping your vegetables up in material. Yeah, yeah they're just wax fantastic. Wraps are fantastic. Yeah, so fold place, history, um, sorry, hobbies, and then occupations. And occupational history is so important part of any mm. history, as I'm sure you would know. You know, painters, spray painters, people in the automotive industry, people in the military, engineers, in aviation engineers, notorious for post-traumatic stress disorder and multiple chemical sensitivities, and gardeners and landscapers and fishermen and hairdressers. Hairdressers, and, I mean, <laughs> huge. It's just huge. I mean, they have high rates of miscarriage. If you look at the data on different occupations, it's actually like, oh my God. Um, yeah. It's really an important part of a, of a history taking to see where they could be exposed. Or just ask the client, have you ever been involved in an occupation where you're exposed to potential chemicals, electromagnetic fields, um, toxic metals, um, you know, all these sort of things, or microbes. You know, if you're a restorer or remediator, you're exposed to water damaged buildings. These mm. are important questions to ask. So, okay, so we've got to O and then we've got L. L, fold. Yeah. So L is for lifestyle. I want to know what you do for your lifestyle. So tell me about your exercise routine because a lot of people, they start exercising and they go overboard and they stress their heart out and weaken their heart by overdoing it. You know, they start marathon <laughs> running mm. and it's not balanced anymore and they start running in polluted areas next to traffic, high levels of traffic, which sort of defeats the purpose of being healthy, um, yeah. you know, or areas where they're exposed to other toxins. That's not good. Um, so lifestyle is important. Their sleep is a very big one. Most people with chronic illnesses have some degree of sleep disorders, sleep disturbances. In fact, it's sort of almost synonymous with um, mm. chronic illness, isn't it? And I think you, what, one of the most important things you've got to do as a clinician is get that patient to sleep as fast as possible to get their circadian rhythm back in line because it's almost impossible to get them to a state of well-being whilst their sleep is disturbed. And for oh, me 100%. as a building biologist, that would be looking in their bedroom and making sure there's nothing that we know can impact their sleep like 
any Wi-Fi enabled device will mm. emit radiation or radio frequencies that we know impacts non-REM sleep, that we know suppresses melatonin. And you know, as you know, I'm about to publish a study on the impact of a baby monitor on healthy adult sleep. And it was statistically significant. It impacted the delta and theta waves during non-REM sleep and it impacted um, you know, clinically their sleep diaries. So even though it was double blind randomized control crossover pilot study. Um, and in healthy adults. So, you know, what is a baby monitor doing near kids? That's right. I'll often get my patients to actually draw a picture of their bed and draw it where it is in the house, what sits behind the bed on the out if it's the outside world or if there's a an ensuite backing, you know, to the to the head of the bed and kind of get them to draw it because it gets them to think about where all of those electricity you know, cables are coming in, they've got a clock radio that's emitting EMF, you know, next to their bed. And depending on how sensitive people are as well, like um, we're going to talk a little bit about sensitivity and um, susceptibility later on. So, And they're great questions, especially, you know, you don't want to, you, on the opposite side of all the adjacent to your bed head, you don't want a fridge because the motor's yes. going and off, you don't want a smart meter or meter panel, you don't want a router, extender, booster, anything with a pump, like a pull pump, you know, inverters are really bad in terms of magnetic fields from solar panels. So these are the things that you don't want in close proximity within a room or two away from your bedroom and no mm. mobile phones in the bedroom and no Wi-Fi enabled devices. And that, I mean, that's an easy thing to ask for. So it, with lifestyle, is there anything else that you want to kind of hone in on? Um, let me see. So exercise and sleep are the big ones. I'm sure there's more that I've completely forgotten about. <laughs> Maybe in terms <laughs> of their holidays, where they go to and, you know, sun exposure, of course, is still important. Skin melanoma is still a big killer here in this country. So you'd ask them about that and their sunscreen use and, you know, how, how they protect themselves from, you know, midday sunlight. But more importantly, making sure they get enough because we're all vitamin D deficient, which, of course, is precursors for infection. <laughs> so. It's getting that balance. That's what's really important is um, being able to establish what's healthy for that person with that genotype is yeah, critical. Right. Uh, what Can you think of any other lifestyle factors that I've missed? Well, I mean, obviously with, with most of the practitioners, they'll be asking about food and alcohol and things related to that. I guess the question that I've often asked is also how much toxic exposure do we get from partners? You know, for example, like, you know, if, if your partner has an occupation that brings home lead dust, you know, for example, or um, mould spores asbestos. in their clothes or asbestos, like then the partner, you may not ask that in the occupational history for that particular person, but it could be that. And I remember when uh, the COVID-19 pandemic came in and there was talk about, you know, coming directly into a different place of the house and washing the clothes, et cetera. And that was the first sort of time of like, wow, we've really got impact in terms of what we're bringing into that house um, and how much that can impact the rest of the family. Absolutely. So industries where that could be an issue would be building and construction, restoration and mould remediation because they literally could have high levels of, as you said, lead dust or asbestos on their clothing. So they should don off or have either 
personal protective equipment that's uh, disposable, like Tyvek suits, et cetera, and gloves that are disposable and done at the site as opposed to come home with their clothes and then, you know, trample all over the house and release it. Because, of course, there were women, wives who died from asbestos exposure because they were cleaning their husband's clothes. Other mm. ones are dentists. If they're bringing home the um, towels and they've got mercury on them, et cetera, or other forms of toxic metals, then, you know, the nurses or whoever's doing that could be exposed to high levels of toxic metals or other type of chemicals, definitely. It's just an um, absolute is, minefield, isn't it? It's just such it, a minefield. It is. Mm. And that's why um, Professor Mark Cole and I are developing an app on how, you know, get the patient to go through this environmental exposure history, lifestyle history and um, health history and to build up the logarithms to see if there are connections once we get big data sets. Because it's to take this takes 90 minutes and that's what, you know, these doctors were saying that I interviewed. It takes a good 90 minutes in the first consultation to take your history and even then you're not going to get it all. It, it needs to be done in some patients like who have chronic fatigue syndrome, you just can only do, they can only take a small amount at a time. So you need a lots of small consultations to help these patients who are also mm. have emotional traumas that are bringing into their consultation. Many That's of right. these patients and, have these histories. Yeah. Yeah. And it's overwhelming. Like, you know, it's overwhelming yeah. for people. So it takes, I mean, not only are you asking these questions and they might be revealing these answers and then, you know, watching their practitioners sort of eyes go, okay, well, this could be something that we need to consider. And then it's like, wow, I have to start to reshape and and redesign how I live my life to such details. It takes takes a long time for us to to renormalise that without the anxiety and the fear and, and feeling a sense of empowerment with this information because... Um, it's really important that we empower patients with this information. So slowly, the app sounds fantastic, so they can actually navigate those changes without feeling overwhelmed. Yes. And look, because for a clinician to take these questions, there's no point asking the questions if you don't know what to do with the answers. Mm. You know, you need to have an understanding. It just reminds me of a recent um, event where I went with a professional organiser who was a declutterer to see how she goes about the process. And she it spent three hours in one little laundry decluttering this woman's house who was a, a hoarder. Mm. And she had four big containers of naphthalene mothballs, right? And I was quite quiet. I just watched the process and I didn't interrupt much. I was just observing how she worked as a professional organiser. And first I was shocked. Firstly, she's got 10 staff and they all take antihistamines before they go to a job. That's how toxic that job is. Now, that's another one of the occupations. Are you a declutterer? Because (laughs) you're exposed to high levels of mould, lead, asbestos, cockroaches, pests like far out like oh my god I just walked in and went ding 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 and they had no idea (laughs) like I'm speaking at their conferences and they're going we've all got we're all sick Cole I'm going oh well that's because you're doing this and this and we there's no formal training but I was at this place and she was um had this amazing personality this declutterer her name was Amy and um we came across these jars, these big bottles of naphthalene mothballs and I said to the lady it's one of the few times I spoke in the three hours I said are you aware that these are known carcinogens, that they can affect your immune system and increase your risk of cancer? And she looked at me and she said, oh, okay, well, I'll get rid of two, but I want to keep one. And I said, when you look at this jar, what does it? What memories does it bring up for you? And she said, it reminds me when I was young, mum used to get these naphthalene flakes, mothballs, and spread them throughout the house because she was protecting us from the pests. 
Mm. So she associated that with a positive memory of her mother protecting her children, even though her mother didn't realise what she was doing is actually increasing their toxicity, and but thought that this was, you know, by getting rid of moths and getting rid of insects and spiders, she was protecting her children. She could not let go of that last bottle mm. because she associated with a positive memory, even though I told her it would cause it could increase her risk for cancer. That's what you're dealing with. I mean, it takes a long time for us to kind of almost embody this information, I think. And it's really important as we're taking our patients through that to to be, I guess, cognizant of the emotionality, you know, and, and the convenience and the, um, I guess it's a lot to take in. So in some ways we have to normalise our toxicity or our environmental toxicity because once we unravel it, it can be very emotional. But I wanted to to go back into sort of things like taking this, this is, have we gone, have we done D? No, we've got three Ds, got D to the power of three. Diet, so I put diet separate to lifestyle. And without doubt, your diet, you've got to bring in over 20 tonnes of food through your gut over a lifetime. That's Mm. where most of the toxicity is going to happen. That's why the immune system, the pays, patches, et cetera, 70% of immune response is in the gut for that reason. So, you know, as you said, fish is the big one, not just for lead now, for microplastics, PCBs and other things like that. That's why in the 80s, the Danish actually had a marketing campaign to all of the obstetric clinics warning women not to use perfume and, and plastics and to also avoid more than one fish meal a month if they were mm. of a woman of reproductive age because of the toxicity, even then they were onto yeah, it. Unbelievable. Yeah. They, they were onto it early. When I was in Norway, they had a mass amalgam removal program, didn't they, in their, yeah, um, wow. for their whole country because they knew that fish was such a important kind of, I mean, it's national food really. Yeah. And um, so they had to minimise the risks in other areas of of um, industry, I guess. Yeah. And mm. that's a conundrum. Like patients with sensitivities, you get their amalgams removed. Most of them go backwards a year or two in their health. It's so bad. Mm. It's difficult to, even if it's done properly with oxygen and rubber dams and propolis and charcoal, et cetera, it still can be very, the nervous system may not cope yeah. when they remove those amalgams yeah, in, in be, highly sensitive patients. But it needs to be done. I mean, you don't want it in your mouth, and especially with electromagnetic fields. It acts as an antenna and accelerates that. So it's <laughs> catch twenty two. Um, <laughs> I laugh about it, but you know, I've had twenty years of going, of getting coming to terms with, you know, corporate corruption, exposure standards, and not based on public health. And you know, I see hundreds and hundreds of my students go through the course, going, "Oh my god, oh my god!" I go, "Yes, I know, I know. Let's deal with what we've got and just educate people from the ground up a bit at a time." You know. That's why I think most people read my book and go, God, I can only do a couple of pages at a time because it's really confronting. It is, and it's a book, though, that you sort of, I mean, there's no other book I know that's like it. So it's it's just, it's like having a little Bible for that particular area of your life. And so, you know, if we're looking at, you know, changing houses or building something or whatever, you get it out and you kind of, you know, um, make sure that you navigate your way through whatever particular process that you're going through. So it's such a fantastic um, resource to have. Yeah, thank you. Look, I wrote it because I hated writing reports for my clients. I was so over saying the same thing over and over and over again. So just read the book. I'm going to give you the book. Don't ask me questions. It's all on there. Look at page five. Have a gift. (laughs) This is the book. (laughs) So, okay, so D is food. 
D is diet, diet D, and the other yep. D is drugs, pharmaceutical drugs. The first, you know, in the end, before I stopped practicing as a clinician, naturopathic acupuncturist, the first thing I would do is go, okay, tell me what medication you're on. The older they are, the more the polypharmacy is common, right? <laughs> I would just literally read out all the side effects of every drug they'll take, and they go, and I said, this is what you're here for, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So there's the root cause. So what can we do to manage this? How can we – are these some of these drugs, can we work with your clinician and go, which drug can we look at weaning you off and starting to bring other things in to manage it better or reduce the side effects? Because, you know, root cause is really important. Yeah, I've had so many successes just with changing diet. Like, I mean, a lot of the practitioners will be listening to this, you know, be nodding in agreement, but and so then all of a sudden, like those those medications are just simply no longer needed yes. again. You know, so I had a man who was on a um, a PPI for you know obviously reflux, but because his reflux was so bad, he had a bowl of grapes next to his bed and he was eating one every hour, and so his digestive system never ever got a rest. We took the grapes away, and his <laughs> reflux. Uh, fixed itself effectively and we could take him off those medications. So as a GP, de-prescribing is such a craft as well. So prescribing, yes. you know, we spend all of our time learning how to prescribe medications and I don't think we had one single lecture in medical school on de-prescribing. What a great subject. And I remember a time when I had an elderly person I wanted to take them off and I actually was sort of had to seek further advice of like, can I just stop this? Like she's 84, can I just stop this cholesterol-lowering medication or whatever it was, I can't really remember. But it, I felt nervous about stopping it. That's how kind of in, entrained we were to prescribe and not yeah. to stop. So at this time this could be just a fabulous opportunity for naturopaths to re-refer back to their GP to discuss whether deprescribing some of these medications is appropriate. Absolutely. And on top of that, you know, that um, combination of herbs and supplements and and, medic and pharmaceutical drugs, you know, the book Natural and Supplements by Leslie Bourne and Mark Cohen, that's mm. a great one looking at the combinations there because sometimes people can get that. You know, there's some herbs you cannot actually take with <laughs> massive contraindications oh, because yeah. of that. All of that has to be sorted out very early on in your consultation mm. with the patient, you know, before you even look down the track for the other you know, the, the the diet, the lifestyle, like you've got to look at the big fish first, the biggest risks you've got to yeah. get onto in the first consultation and the first three, try and deal with that before you get into the more, okay, lifestyle, mm. diet, all that other stuff for sure. Um, so, And the last one's dental history, big yes. one. That is probably one of the largest sources of toxic, toxicity apart from the diet. Mm. Place medicine, dental history and uh, pharmaceutical drugs and diet, sorry, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, so it's a it's a big long history, and your app sounds fantastic in to which to sort of navigate people through this, but also to get people to think about it before a consultation can sometimes be really useful for an environmental history beyond any other history taking because there's such a longitudinal factor. You're talking to grandparents, parents, etc., about kind of getting all of this information, which could be very very new for people, really. Yes. So just going through, like, I mean. We've sort of touched on the fact that pretty much any chronic disease can have an environmental 
you know, imp- or there's an impact from our environment in pretty much any condition that we're looking at. But yep. is there ones that are standouts for you? So, for example, if we're new to this environmental history taking, would you know, is it things like neurological or neurodevelopmental issues or infertility? Are they kind of what are the standout ones that you kind of must must deal with it? Um, yeah, or, or you, right. you really won't get anywhere. All right, asthma and allergies. That's number one. For sure, because what yeah. you're breathing in is often the problem, you know, with, with the allergies or what you're putting in your mouth, for sure. They're, they're the big ones. Asthma, allergies, and fatiguing syndrome. So any autoimmune disorder associated with long-term fatigue um, yeah. is a big one for mould, for sure, but also other allergens in the environment. So, you know, your pests, your pet dander. A lot of people have allergies and don't even know. You know, mm. even just your normal IgE-mediated uh, allergies, they don't know they're allergic and they've been allergic to dust mites all their life and sneezed all their life and had antihistamines all their life and not realise that by having a, a uh, cover over their bed and their pillow, they could stop all of that. Like, you know, <laughs> it's incredible. So that's great. So we've got asthma, we've got allergies, we've got the fatiguing syndrome. Yep. So mould is a big one there and allergens mm. in the home, for example. Like I yeah. said, dust mites the most common allergy in the, allergen in the world. It affects 21% of the world's population. And it, it's marked by allergy uh, symptoms all year round as opposed to mm. pollens, which are, you know, seasonal related, for example. Um, sleep disturbances, if it's not due to stress or a massive change in their life or, you know, an obvious cause, then always think electromagnetic fields. So if you've done everything else to help someone who's not sleeping well and obviously they haven't had a history of night shift working, which of course, and you know, works as a pilot or a nurse and then circadian rhythms out, that's hard to treat. Um, if it's not due to an obvious thing like that, then think electromagnetic fields. I find as a building biologist that's a common cause of sleep disturbances. And it's so insidious and happens so gradually whilst they're sleeping near the meter panel or a router in their room that they never make that connection. So that's a big one for me, which is why I end up doing that study because it's so common. Gosh, there's so much much for us to kind of think about it. I guess one of the things that I've often struck me in clinic is that when do we decide to focus just on toxin burden alone versus that kind of holistic sort of principles of of mind body soul because it's like they're so they're so concrete and externalized to us you know are there people that are more susceptible to toxic load and you know how do we look out for those people and how do we support them well they'll often tell you that they're sensitive they can't wear perfume you know, they react to the newspaper. Um, often they may not come to you if you work in an inner city area because they're reacting to even the traffic-related fumes. Most of these people have an idea that they're chemically sensitive already. Mm. Um, so they'll often give you that that idea. Um, in terms of their history, they nearly always have a history of atopy. So anyone who had food allergies or environmental allergies or hay fever or asthma, they are big marker for environmental sensitivities, absolutely huge. So that's the first thing I'll look at is the history of allergies, especially in childhood or food allergies, because then you know they're going to be more susceptible to the environment. The reality is we are all susceptible. One of the most amazing quotes I had from a clinician as part of that research I published on um, environmental chemicals and how doctors deal with it is he one doctor said to me I've been in 
treating patients with chronic fatigue syndrome for 40 years. He said, Cole, you know how many patients I've had with chronic fatigue syndrome who have had cancer in 40 years? I've had four patients with cancer. Why do you think they don't get cancer, Cole? I went, I don't know. What do you think? He said, because they're aware, they're, they're like, you know, in the olden days in the tribes, they smelt, you know, the dinosaur meat and went, guys, it's off. And everyone goes, no, it's fine. We'll eat it. And everyone gets gastro, but they don't. They're so finely tuned to the environmental mm. stimuli around them. They saved the tribe. What have we done in our lifetime is we've put them with a psychiatric illness and a mental illness and said, you're not normal because you can't live in this toxic society. When in fact, they're the markers to the rest of humanity go quick, run the other way. Because yeah, the sensitive, anxious, cautious ones. Mm. Exactly. And we're the ones who get the cancers and they don't. Now, I think that's very interesting as a comment and there's certainly not any data on it, but it was his observation of working in that space for 40 years why these patients aren't getting cancer. And it's because their body's so finely tuned when they walk past, you know, the David Jones counter or, or perfume counter and they start getting a migraine headache. They know to mm. avoid it. Whereas you and I stand <laughs> there for God knows how yeah, long. Yeah, I don't and... get one. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So then you, you're actually increasing your toxic load because it stays. Exactly right. So let's say we don't take an environmental history because, you know, this is a new patient and, you know, there's we're not yet at that the sense of rapport with our patient. Is there something about signs to look for or, you know, things in our examination that can kind of create a little spark to sort of say, okay, well, this is something that, okay, I'm, I might need to look at this next time. So signs and examinations and little uh, things that prick up your ears. Yeah, well, as, when I asked these doctors this, they came out with a very interesting phenotype that many many of them talked about, and that was a background from Welsh or the UK, um, where they had you know fair skin, freckled, red haired. They were far more likely to have the gluten intolerances. If anyone's got gluten intolerance or celiac, they are highly <laughs> likely to have environmental sensitivities to chemicals. Mm. So that's and they have hyperflexibility. I don't know what that syndrome's called, but it's their joints are highly flexible and they're, you know, they're often like, oh, you know, I, I can't cope with chemicals. That you'll see it in the history. It's like as I said, food allergies as a kid, environmental allergies, asthma and allergies as a child, atopic constitutions. They may have a background or gene type from the Welsh or Wales or, you know, those areas where they have more gluten intolerance. They are highly sensitive to the environment generally. So, okay, so so little things. So sometimes like, you know, genetic uh, background is important as well and just piecing it all together, I think keeping that environmental history in the back of our minds at all times is just such an important but. For, for those that are kind of new to this or that, that don't feel like they've got the experience in which to kind of take people through not just a re- reduction of exposure, but who do we refer to? Is there a group of people like you've been training up building biologists for the last 10 or 15 years or so? Like a, a, is that a good option for people to actually reach out and find their local building biologists so that we can at least help with that educational and reduction of, of load? Yeah, absolutely, because the building biologist, it's a nationally accredited advanced diploma of building biology that I offer, and um, a, a big part of the course in two, full, two years full-time, I get them to take an environmental exposure history. That's what they're trained to do, and mm. then do a site inspection to look at if the house is making them sick. 
and look for common hazards. You know, obviously lead is the big one. Uh, asbestos, we're not allowed to certify because you have to be certified to do it, but you can base it on the age, you know that it's potentially likely and then refer them. Mould is a big part of the work we do. Um, so if they have asthma allergies or autoimmune-like disorders with fatiguing syndromes, then definitely you want to check mould and mm. the history of mould. So ask, have you had water damage in your car? Have you had water damage in previous homes? Did you grow up in a mouldy home? It's very, very rare I get someone with chronic fatigue or SIRS that hasn't also grown up in a water-damaged environment or hasn't been exposed to other biotoxins like blue-green algae, so in lakes, contaminated lakes, or tick bites. Like there's this... Mm. By the time the body breaks down, it's been exposed to multiple either pesticide spraying from sheep dipping on their farm to, you know, living in farming communities to having a tick bite. It's this multitude layer of multiple factors before they actually, the system breaks down and then they become chronically unwell. Amazing. And we're going get, to get you back to talk about mole because... I think, you know, we could really do a deep dive into what to look for and how to, to diagnose that um, most effectively and what to do about it. So, but let's finish it off here because often sometimes these conversations will be like, oh my God, <laughs> what do I do? So I know you've got some amazingly simple ways in which to reduce our burden. Right. So from a house perspective, so I'm not going to go through diet because that's you, most that's of your right. listeners will know what to do with diet. Um, in terms of the house, you want to make sure if you get any water damage or a water event where you flooded your bar, overflowed your bath, etc., you want to dry it within 48 hours. After 48 hours, it goes from a water drying event to a mould remediation job, which can go from, you know, a few hundred dollars to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands. So mould is a big problem affecting at least 40% of the housing stock. Make sure you, you look after your house, that you clean the gutters on a regular basis. The drainage is good. There's no water pooling around the house. That's important because... Without fail, I find most of my patients' chemical sensitivity, most of them started in a mouldy house because mould affects the detoxification pathways, which I can talk about next time. So mould and mm. chemical sensitivity, I see, is the same. So make sure any visible mould or damp odour, you need to get a building biologist to test to identify where it's coming from and get rid of it. That's number one. Number two, take your shoes off. There's a reason why nature's kept at bay out there and the council spreads, you know, spreads thousands of tonnes of pesticides, you know, in order to keep nature at bay. So you want to take your shoes off so you're not tracking all those chemicals onto your carpets where the most vulnerable, like your children, are walking all over and it's in their breathing zone. That's problematic. Third one is to, um, you know, when it comes to buying products, cleaning and personal care, really think about do you really need it? You can clean your house very effectively with a vacuum cleaner fitted with a HEPA filter because but most of the chemicals in the house are sitting in the household dust. So how you deal mm. with the dust will determine the toxic load in the house. So you want a good vacuum cleaner with a HEPA filter and you want microfiber cloths that are slightly damp and that's how you're going to dust. So you wash the microfiber cloth dust you know, down the sink. That's important. The last thing, because I've only got four options that you've given me, whereas <laughs> I could talk about 20. <laughs> I know. I have to, to rein you filter. in. <laughs> So yep. filter, get a water filter, get an air filter. If you don't get a filter, your body becomes a filter. So for me, I live in a bushy environment because the plants are filtering any air from the traffic-related air pollutants and stuff instead of my lungs and my kids. 
So an air filter is really important. I just did an hour and a half lecture that I've, I've got free lectures on my um, college website of why you need an air filter. So, Great. you know, that's important because now with and bushfires... That's an easy. That's an easy. It's easy. It is an easy. It's such a great bander. If you're living in a rental where there's mould and you can't do anything about it because it's a rental, get an air filter. And wherever you are in the house, have the air filter on. That will make huge differences to reducing your inhalation of particulates, fungal particulates. Amazing. And a water filter is important. You don't want chlorine. You don't want fluoride, etc. I mean, but that's a lecture in its own right. Wow, Nicole, you are a wealth of knowledge. It's such a fascinating area. And, you know, as we know, it can be overwhelming, but just having those simple, easy, cost-effective ways that we can just start the process. We're so lucky to have you, really, to consume this knowledge. So thank you so much for all you do in this space. It's such an honour to have such an intelligent discussion with such an Thank amazing you. person. So, <laughs> I just forgot to mention the Association of Building Biologists. So to find a building yes. biologist, it's asbb.org.au. Fabulous. And we'll have all of the show notes, transcripts and resources that we mentioned today from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. Nicole Bellsmith, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm Dr. Michelle Woolhouse and this is FX Medicine. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.